All right, welcome into the latest edition of Lima Land Hoops in History. I'm Matt Childers, your host. Great to have the band back together. It's my uh, old buddy. It's my partner. It's uh, Matt Metzger, everybody. Metz, how are you doing, pal? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, great to have you with us and uh, yeah. great to have you on the program uh, as uh, we'll uh, do a little different uh, than just uh, hoops. We can, we can talk hoops uh, and historical hoops going forward. Uh, but let's just talk some sports junkie stuff. How how have you been holding up with no sports for really the last time we were together on a on a road trip was March uh, 11th, uh, and then the 14th was the Saturday was our final show since we've been on hiatus, and so this is uh, now uh, 60 plus days uh, since that time frame. How's your life been? And as a sports junkie, how's your sports world been? It's amazing how quickly those 60 days have gone by in some ways. And then in other ways, you think back to how long it feels like we've had 10 years in those 60 days. Mm. I think of the sports world pretty much encompasses that with absolutely nothing going on. And you look back to that day, go back to where we were at, the University of Toledo. We had Lima Senior playing in a regional semifinal game, come off a great performance, uh, really electrifying atmosphere. There was an odd atmosphere because at that point, the OHSA had rendered it being a small crowd environment with basically parents or immediate personnel involved with the game were only allowed in. And, uh, I told everyone that hour and 10, hour and 20 minute drive down 75 that night, little did I know the world pretty much came unfolded. And it started with the NBA. Yeah. Uh, the National Basketball Association that evening decides to pull players off the floor, and obviously Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell uh, uh, become infected with that, with the COVID-19 virus. The sports world pretty much from that day on changed completely. And now, you know, you ask that question, I've adapted pretty well, um, mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, I miss sports. I miss live sports. I love the replays. I love the nostalgic part of looking back at life. But at the same time, and uh, I think whenever we get back into that fold again, whoever's the first, whether it be Major League Baseball or whether it be the National Basketball Association trying to pick up some pieces, or maybe we have to wait to the fall, hopefully, uh, to where college football and the NFL can take over as they normally do on, on the calendar. Whatever it is, people are going to rush back to it. There's just – I heard a lot of conversation early on, and, and everybody was right, even the people that were involved in the sports world day-to-day saying that, you know, we're not the important part of life right now. We're going to take a back seat and we're going to do it. Nobody had a problem with that early on. Mm. But I think now that we're getting a little bit further into the calendar, people are getting a little anxious. They want their social lives back. And with their social life, especially in the Lionel Land area, comes sports, no question. Yeah, for sure. Matt Metzger joining uh, us. Uh, we got the band back together, and it's great to have Metz uh, with me this morning. Uh, on Lima Land Hoops and History. We're going to talk a, a variety of different things, uh, including hoops. Uh, let's, uh, you know, when, when you think about that University of Toledo setting, the one thing that I came away from uh, where there were, you know, allowed approximately maybe 100, 150 on each side of the uh, the two schools, it did not feel like it was an empty uh, pavilion, an empty arena that evening uh, for folks that are looking for just sports to come back with no fans. I'm sure it will be, uh, it'll be somewhat weird, but I will say this that night, I did not notice that one bit. Forgot about it during the broadcast several times. Uh, you know, right away, I think we all were just kind of anxious at that moment for all kinds of reasons. We had a lot, we all had a lot going on in our minds, kind of trying to figure out what was going on all around us. 
But I told everyone, the level of play, the atmosphere, the intensity, the vested interest that everybody in that arena had to where I looked around late in that game and still vividly remember everyone standing. When do you get 100% of the people in the gym standing for a game? But that night, you had it because mm-hmm. everyone there, parents, administrators, faculty, had a vested interest in that game other than just being a supporter of the school. So that ramped it up. And, you know, I, I've told people, these kids, and I'll even take that to the professional level, calling some of them kids or, or young adults when you look at it, grew up in an era where a lot of their athletic games were played in front of minimal fans so to them all of a sudden would they rather play in front of fans well sure but the intensity level that people are worried about thinking that there won't be the same intensity level there is a lot of pride in everybody that's a professional athlete a collegiate athlete and a high school athlete at the highest level too that if they get out get the chance to compete they're going to play regardless if there's a hundred thousand people there or maybe a hundred or none it's going to happen. And I think for us, the audience, we just want to be able to watch it and be a part of it. If that maybe now in the form for the next few months comes by sitting on your couch at home, we just want to be able to see it on TV. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and speaking of TV, uh, the last dance just finished up 10 episodes. Uh, I uh, listen to Dan Patrick on a regular basis, and I think it's funny. He says that uh, Ken Burns uh, did the documentary on the Civil War and uh Ken only got nine in, but Michael Jordan got 10 episodes in for his last dance. But uh, I was riveted by it. Uh, Just give me your impressions of what uh, the last dance was like for you. Yeah, you remember all of it. Um, I'm sitting here watching it through that time frame that right in my wheelhouse, the the six championships the Bulls had that encompassed those years were times that I remember vividly growing up. And I mean, Michael Jordan was it back then. He's still it now. But even back then as a kid growing up, even if you weren't a Bulls fan, you were a Michael Jordan fan. Mm. There weren't many people that weren't. In fact, if you weren't, you were just trying to be the outlier. That was basically the way I looked at it. I had a few friends that wanted to be that way. That's fine. But it was it was a good walk down memory lane. That's the best way I, I said I really liked some of the stuff before, um, things that I couldn't remember or didn't go through once in my lifetime, some of the things in North Carolina and even before – Hearing that, I love the behind-the-scenes stories of anything. That definitely tells you kind of how things come about. But, you know, what I didn't want, I didn't want to walk away from this angry or worried, and I was worried about that, or mad and think, man, the childhood hero, the sports hero that you had and watched on TV, I didn't want that to be tarnished. It's not tarnished at all. In fact, to me, he's even larger in life than what I thought he was mm-hmm. going into it now as a 40-plus-something adult, I look at him and think, he's everything I thought he really was as far as a competitor. And to hear Michael Jordan put it in his own words through the majority of that documentary was kind of a very rare glimpse behind the scenes for a guy that played his entire career without social media, without any of the the under-the-microscope that today's NBA athletes go through. I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, it was well done, well documented. The, the sound bites, the clips, I know it took them obviously a ton of years to put this together, but it was well worth it. I mean, it made Sunday night for five consecutive weekends, must-see TV, yeah. I never missed one second of it live. Yeah, it was like going back to the Soprano days where uh, you had the, exactly you had the right. yeah. front of the Good TV <laughs> for, the, for the Sopranos. I, yeah. I, I, would, I would ask you uh, this because 
it was interesting to see Michael in his really early days coming out of North Carolina and how he was someone who was saying, hey, look, I'd like to be able to bring, you know, some championships to the Bulls. And then he had to go against a Magic Johnson and those those loaded Laker teams with James Worthy and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Byron Scott, Michael Cooper, and then Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, and then the Pistons with Isaiah and those bad boys. Man, he took a long beating to get to where he was, and then for him to basically own the 90s, which was your high school and collegiate decade. um, What did you think of that uh, ability for him to, you know, basically be baptized into the NBA and then his infancy and then to be able to plug and punch through the Pistons? Perseverance, I mean, I think is a great word to describe him and his mentality that you know a lot of people don't have. Maybe patience too, which he, he would say he's not a patient player or a patient person. But when you think about that, it shows you about that era that there you are with two of the historic all-time greats, Bird and Magic, right out of the gate in your career when they still were at their very elite levels mm. of bad, maybe some of their best years yeah. when he comes into the league. And then you kind of have this a love or hate feeling with the Pistons. People around here, there's as many people who loved them as hated them. Um, and I, I'm going to tell you what, I go back in time, I remember that. I remember feeling that way, thinking he's never mm. going to beat the Pistons. I just, I didn't see it. I didn't feel it. I thought, and I remember the moniker, he's going to be the best player to play to never win an NBA title. Mm. That was what was said back then. I mean, Obviously, that's foolish to talk about now, but I'm telling you, in 1989 and 1990, you were starting to feel that way because the Pistons looked unbeatable. I mean, they did. You started thinking about the other teams in the NBA. The Knicks were starting to become a very good basketball team as well, and some of the Western Conference teams, you had the run of athletes that were out there. You you didn't know what that was going to be like. And I think that says a lot to the era of basketball to where we know what would happen in this day and age. People would leave Mm. and join forces and be on another basketball team. Yeah, Michael Jordan, that that wasn't even talked about or thought about. He wasn't leaving Chicago. The question was, was the organization itself going to surround him with players, with the ability to be able to dethrone those three teams that you were talking about? Yeah, and you're you're, uh, spot on with that where – uh, he needed help, and he got that help in the form of Scotty Pippen, who came from Central Arkansas. Uh, I know Krause got a really bad rap, uh, Jerry Krause, yeah. in, in in the early uh, episodes, and then and then at the end, Scotty Pippen gave him a lot of credit. But you do have to give him some credit for not only formulating those teams and being the architect, but then pl- you know picking out from Central Arkansas, you know, a Scotty Pippen who was really the the greatest Batman to. Yeah. Michael's uh, or the greatest Robin to Michael's Batman. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you look at there. There are two guys in that documentary that I mean, you think back to where with him, Pippen being from Arkansas, and then Dennis Rodman, Southeast Oklahoma. I mean, are you kidding me? These aren't two major tier program guys. That you look from where they were to where they ended up being to where you're not just saying they were an NBA great. They might have been an NBA elite. Hmm. That's that was what it was, and to be able to have Pippen, who again, a lot of guys don't like playing second fiddle. How many times have we had the conversation on air about Kyrie Irving never wanting to be in number two? I, I kept thinking back to that. I mean, I 
I, in my own mind, before everybody goes crazy over the LeBron-Michael comparisons, was thinking about the comparisons of those two, the way their teams and their teammates have been through their careers, where that was always kind of one of LeBron's problems in Cleveland was he never had a true number two that wanted to be a number two. Mm. Scottie Pippen, I'm not saying he didn't want to be number one, but he knew darn well who number one was and was very, very comfortable being number two in that role. And I'm telling you, look how he was paid. That's how you knew he was comfortable being number two. Yeah. You saw the line item on his on his contract when he was in Chicago, how few of dollars that guy made was laughable. Mm. I mean, yeah. genius in the front office for the Chicago Bulls to pull it off, but laughable in Scotty Pippen's yeah, when you look at the uh, 98 uh, roster, I think Luke Longley was making more money than Scottie Pippen uh, exactly by right. about a million dollars. So, yeah, uh, that that to me was the quintessential, um, you know, second fiddle to be able to play to Michael, oh. and he was a great second fiddle. Um, and, th- and that's not an insult. The second fiddle no, is not, not an insult not at all. At all. No. Um, but all of those teams needed that. I mean, Magic had his Jabbar. Uh, Bird had his McHale or Parrish, whichever one, and then they had great supporting cast. Uh, the Bad Boys had Isaiah, and then and and then was able to get Mark Aguirre and had AD Adrian Dantley. Um, Jordan needed that second guy because he was not going to punch through without that. And what's interesting, Matt, is my former coach uh, John Stroya, who became the head coach at Youngstown State. His good friend Bill Daly died the first year that he was there. It was actually in the fall. They needed to get an emergency coach at the time. They ended up getting Jim Clemens for one year at Youngstown State. Jim Clemens then leaves Youngstown State uh, the next year and goes to be uh, Phil Jackson's assistant in Chicago. And he came back to watch John as the head coach at Wright State. I'm down there with a couple family members, run into Jim Clemens. I had known him from the year before. And I just said, how is, how is it you know, working with Michael? And he said something that my cousin and I and my brother laughed about, which was, we're trying to make Michael be more of a facilitator than he is the one-man band. And we all laughed about that later, like, oh, that's funny. You know, he's the greatest player. That's funny. That's exactly what had to happen. And Jim Clemens shared that with us on a wintry night down in Dayton, Ohio in 1988. Yeah, 1987, 88. You're, you're, you, everything you said is part of the reason that, you know, when things start to fall in place, you don't know it as you're going through it. You wish you could because you would enjoy it a heck of a lot more if we all knew the end result and everything. But the journey is still the reason why it makes it fun. You, you look back at that transition from Doug Collins to Phil Jackson, and it was covered to where Collins, what, here's the ball, Michael, go, go do. Yeah. All of a sudden, you bring in Tex Winter and the triangle offense mentality and what Phil brought to the table with a very simplistic concept, but took a lot of moving parts and players willing to play multiple positions to make that work. And that's why, I mean, that to me is where the comparison with LeBron starts is because he is a facilitator, Mm. in some ways, facilitator too much. Mm. I mean, we've critiqued him through the years of, Passing it up, go take the shot, quit quit trying to kick it to Kyle Corver in the corner, go to the basket. That's still part of the way he's brought up. That's the way, and, and realistically, when Michael Jordan won six titles, and 
should have been eight, could have been nine for all we know, Mm -hmm. through all of that because he was always willing. He knew when to do it, but he always knew when to get the ball to the right spot on the floor to the right person. And he had guys that were willing to accept those roles and take those shots because we saw Steve Kerr, John Paxson, Scotty Pippen, Horace Grant, while they were part of that fabric, they adapted to the role, but also shared the limelight with them because they all had their individual moments of flat-out greatness. Mm. It sometimes gets overlooked, but because of Michael's ability to find his way in that offense, and it was. I mean, the people that don't remember what he was like as a player prior to Phil Jackson and that offense being installed, all you got to do is go look at posters and basketball cards and video to know what he was like athletically, and that never went away. But he did develop as a basketball player mightily through that eight or nine years. And that was one part of it that I thought didn't get covered completely. And I know they didn't want to make it all about Michael. But his development as a basketball player was immense through the night. Yeah, for sure. Great uh, thoughts there on the last dance. It's Matt Metzger and Matt Childers back with you here on the uh, Limeland Hoops and History podcast. Uh, there's some tentacles uh, for the Lima Land folks because of that. You know, John Stroya coached here. He coached with Jim Clemens. Jim Clemens then coached with Phil, both in Chicago and L.A. Phil Jackson, according to the New York Times, was called by the owner of the Albany Patroons to get back into the coaching game uh, from a payphone in the American Legion Hall in Lima, Ohio, uh, according to the New York Times. And that was where they were playing the Ohio Mixers back in the 1982-83 season. And there was uh, Phil Jackson, that tie. And then John Paxson dropped 30 on LCC. I was there at the game in 1979. He had committed to Notre Dame, and uh, he dropped 30 on a Sunday afternoon and was just an incredible player. And, man, what a great career the guys like John Paxson and Steve Kerr were able to have due to the, the Michaels and the Scotties. Yeah, just such a great, great group of people when you look back, the minds, the basketball minds, the, the story that came out of that that had remembered because I remember the book by John Feinstein that he covered, uh, not just season on the brink with the college inside, that when, yeah. he, when he went through an entire season spot. I remember reading that as a kid about yep. Steve Kerr in Arizona and hearing the story of his dad for the first time and just thinking, growing up, thinking, how do you how do you go through that and continue to play? Yeah, some of the things he had to go through as a college basketball player. Um, that's part of the thing for Cavs fans out there that probably don't like Steve Kerr because he's a Golden State Warriors head basketball coach. That was the biggest part of that that I hope people remembered and, and listened to that story and thought, man, because I, I think there's a lot of people that didn't know that watching the Last Dance, and that's what it wasn't just Michael's story. There was a lot more to that. And you got to hear a lot of other people in their own words kind of tell their own story. So I thought yeah. that the Kerr part of that was very special there at the end. Yeah, well, well said. Yeah, his father killed uh, as the uh, president of American University in Beirut uh, in the early 80s. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Phil Jackson then, uh, you know, once they did have the last dance uh, and they won it, he had them have one last session and he had them write something down and then they put it in a, coffee can and and uh and lit the flame i thought that was a pretty cool transition pretty intense it's almost one of those moments too where you wish somebody would have had to you know had the cell phone sure. ready to go you're right Back then that wasn't the case to be able to record that that's a special moment for those guys to be as storytellers to get that out there because there is no video i mean that was a moment in the locker room that was not not shared 
Uh, but that's that to me was pretty cool and, and very Phil Jackson esque um, as far as how he has kind of always been mystical in his own ways to, to be yeah. able to do what he's done in his career. That was a pretty fitting closing uh, and, and tough to watch. You know that, that how that ended, knowing full well how it ended, but just listening to them talk about how close that really was to continuing, but it just. The stars weren't aligned. I mean, there weren't a whole lot else to say about it other than Bill had pretty much said he was done. Jerry Reinsdorf never really committed fully based yeah. on – you heard the conversation, but I thought there's a lot of 2020 hindsight going on here. Yeah. Um, and, and you heard Michael say, you know, Scotty could have been the outlier. He was the one that was going to captivate a big contract and didn't get it. Yeah. He would have been the one Woody have came back. But, man, just a – it was. It was a great ten-part documentary, and that that last part of it, the last twenty minutes, was very, very good. Yeah, it was fun. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I do think that uh, it was the Pippin was the linchpin because they were going to have yeah. to pay Michael thirty-six million at that time, and then they were going to have to pay Scotty quite a bit at that time. And he probably just didn't want a one-year deal. He probably wanted more. So hey, the way there I look at lot, it, the way I look at it is a, too. With the one other thing was with Jerry Reinsdorf. You know, people forget. Dual owners that own two teams in two different leagues, that was a huge financial stress. Mm. And there are a lot of people that have made that conversation kind of on the money side of things that if that wouldn't have been the case, that he didn't have that money in his own pocket split two different directions, would there have been more of a likelihood that he would have overpaid in the direction of the Bulls? But the White Sox at that time, remember, New Comiskey Park being built, mm. they were not at their best either. They were just a money drain at that point. And a lot of that money that people in the, the Chicago community will still say that. The Bulls were making it, and the White Sox were losing it. Sure. And that was the problem, too, that put him right in the middle of it, too. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, the fact of the matter is, is uh, he probably could have, well, now that the rebuild is still being rebuilt, uh, for the, <laughs> right. he probably could have done done better than uh, what they ended up doing. But no it was question. just fascinating. I'll get your uh, quick take uh, on, on uh, wrap this up where Michael Jordan – had uh, indicated that really past, you know, post Magic, Bird, and Isaiah, that the that the uh, Pacers were his toughest out and, and maybe their best team with the likes of uh, Rick Smiths, Reggie Miller, Mark Jackson, uh, the uh, Davis brothers, that group. Uh, what were your recollections of that group? Yeah, Reggie Miller was a bad man. That's what I remember the most. I remember that, and I remember vividly that series coming down the Eastern Conference Finals to to that Game 7, thinking, this is it. They are done. I mean, I was really nervous going into that game that evening uh, for Chicago. And I, I remember that. I, I think my – as far as a rivalry, I first would have said the Pistons, just because of when that happened in such a turning point of his career to get over and get by. Yeah. And then Michael just shot off the charts. Where then – I'm not real sure anybody was a rivalry for his whole career – but I would put the Pacers up there first and foremost. And to me, in my mind, the Knicks, just because of where they were at when Michael left yeah. for those two years, that was the team to beat in the Eastern Conference. I mean, everybody was looking to try to get by a very tough, rugged New York Knicks team that really kind of set the tone for what was to evolve a little bit later on as far as 90s style of basketball, physical, tough-minded, defensive first, low-scoring games. Knicks had a lot to do with that. 
as that started to phase out and this era of guys started to retire, that's when we transitioned into the era that we're more familiar with currently watching. Yeah, uh, and the twosomes that we talked about that were so prevalent, Patrick Ewing, poor Patrick, he never uh, had, he never ever had never the Robin to his Batman. He just, no, he, he just never had it, and that was the difference, I think. Uh, it, yeah, they it, tried to look for the, you know, the Larry Johnsons, the Allen Houston's, the yeah. John Starks. You know, all through, just none of them. They weren't bad players. No. They were all really good NBA players. That's what they needed. They never had, he never had anywhere near a Scottie Pippen. You put a no. Scottie Pippen on the New York Knicks, it been a whole different conversation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, really good stuff. Matt Metzger joining uh, myself. It's Matt Childers with the Limeland Hoops and History. Great to have Matt with us. Uh, all right, so let's uh, f- uh, fast forward to uh, current day. The NBA, uh, it happened that week that uh, you and I were in Toledo watching Lima Senior play Toledo start in a regional, getting ready to have Shawnee play uh, uh, the uh, the following night. We'll talk about that coming up. What are your thoughts on what the NBA season was, and then what do you uh, envision going forward here in the next uh, you know six weeks, four to six weeks with the National Basketball I, Association? I, I honestly, I mean, deep down, I never really got off the feeling that it wasn't going to be a Lakers title. I mean, I, I really felt that it was going to be Los Angeles's, you know, I'll call it a tournament to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, then when it became even more of a possibility that it would be a shortened season or maybe only best of three, I thought still in their favor because I thought LeBron's not sitting around not doing anything. And yeah. you know Anthony Davis and having the combination of those two. And you, you, you again, in those situations when you have the best, Whatever room for error you had just grew a little bit more because it's tough to prepare for. I, I'm now, for me to think that we're going to have any part of a 2019-2020 season ending, I'm starting to think is every day and week go by where it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of conversation. Adam Silver said it's not about the date, it's about the data. Said that a few weeks ago. They've never committed. They really don't know how to orchestrate this. You're starting to get a lot of pushback from the players. There's just not a there's not a consensus of the players on what to be done, and, and you can tell the organizations just aren't comfortable pulling the trigger to say, "This is what our plan is, and we're going to do it." Mm-hmm. They're, they're not there, and I, I think now that we're getting close to the end of May, really within the last few weeks of what the playoffs would be, it's hard for me to think that they're just going to say, you know, it, 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 the, the best case I think is some limited playoff where we might have four teams from the East, four teams from the West. But these guys are so far out of conditioning shape as a game. I mean, you can work out on your own all you want, but running up and down the floor and mm-hmm. doing the things you need to do playing five-on-five basketball. Yeah. As, a, as a former player in my own head, I mean, that's a long time to be off, especially right when you were in the wheelhouse of getting to the point of making a final stretch run through the playoffs. I just, I just don't see it happening for this year. I really don't. Yeah, uh, interesting. Just a couple of quick concepts. Brian Winhurst had talked about uh, potentially uh, having a fall playoffs and then start the season in the, the next season in the January or February time frame. Uh, what would your thoughts be on that? Tough. Just to, I, I think I look at it from the point of how do you orchestrate you know the next season? How do you orchestrate that new group the yeah. draft? You know, right. you just do it all boom, boom, boom on top of each other. That's where I. That's where I probably struggle with that. And, and then the also, too, is that it's just that campus-like environment that they were talking about. Do you use Las Vegas? Do you use Orlando? You know, there's not a lot of places that can 
accommodate what they're talking about or do you just let them play it in their home arenas in front of nobody? Yeah. Um, it's, that, that's tough. You know, basketball on TV with no fans would look a little weird from because the crowd is so intimate to those courts anymore. That would be the toughest one to pull this off in their home arenas. Mm-hmm. They found a smaller venue. No, maybe, you know, that could be done, but I really look, I, I guess my thought is this, that you're probably going to just see an end to the 2019-2020 season. They wait a little bit longer than normal to bring him back to a training camp, and we might see a tip-off the next basketball season on what I think should be the official tip-off of the NBA Christmas Day yeah. and start there. I yeah. think it would be a fantastic season and a fantastic way for them to adapt a new calendar to. Yeah, this is an opportunity uh, for them to, to adopt that new calendar, which may make a lot of sense uh, with uh, your suggestion there. Uh, the one suggestion that I, I really liked early on, it was it was during the uh, March Madness time frame, and they said, why don't we just have a one-and-done, just like a regular tournament, oh, yeah. you know, a 16, and just have a one-and-done, and, and maybe in the finals play a best of three, but uh, I thought that was – that. I mean, for the fans' sake, that would be a great – opportunity awesome that's made for tv right there i mean that would be perfect because that's what it would end up being i and i think the chances of something like that happening still i would put up fairly high because i just there's so much logistical behind the scenes that has to take place to make all this work that it's just like i told people it was so easy to turn the switch off yeah because it's done to try to flip it back on and we're seeing that economically everywhere try to do it in sports specifically to where you have any resemblance of what it looked like before is massively harder than what any of these commissioners thought it was going. Yeah. Uh, you, you've been a loyal Cavaliers fan for a lot of years um, with season tickets and season ticket packages, etc. cetera. Uh, was, were there refunds involved in that this year? Yeah, what they did is, so the funny thing about it is in this day and age of being a season ticket holder for professional sports, you are paid so far in advance. You pay for things so far in advance. Mm. We, months ago, were already paying for the next season. Mm. <laughs> so 2019-2020 had been you know, paid and done way long before it even got to this point. So what they'll probably what they will do is uh, refunds won't be issued, but there'll be credits going forward. The problem for them is right now they don't have any time frame on being able to lay out that. So we've had some pretty good communication. The, uh, the Cavs do a fantastic job, always have, with their with their season ticket holders. I'm sure that's not that atypical compared to most. It is a smaller base. Uh, yeah. They don't have to have as many uh, uh, people to communicate. But they've done a very good job as an organization keeping you kind of in tune with what's going on. Very, They were very positive early on. Mm. And as these communications kind of came out, you're starting to get the feeling of kind of what I was talking about earlier might be coming to the conclusion that um, not a whole lot they can do about the season currently going on. And if you're a Cavs fan, quite honestly, you're not worried about that either because we just would like to find out how are we going to get more players into Cleveland via draft or free agency. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're looking at the draft and looking, uh, looking at the forward. and looking going forward. Exactly. Uh, all right, uh, Matt Metzger joining us here, Lima Land Hoops and History talking. Uh, all kinds of hoops uh, sprinkled in with some other things. You talked about baseball, Matt. Um, what do you envision there with uh, the baseball season? I think I think the biggest thing with baseball, you know, is, is that it seems like every time that, and, and me and you, obviously the ages we are, can relate to this. Every time there's a pivotal moment, 
a union negotiation or a labor strike gets in the way of it. And here we are again. It's already kind of out there anyways before all this took place. And now the players and the owners are having a discord agreement. Nobody, and, and baseball has been through this strike in, in, in the short season in 94, losing the World Series, coming back with a short year in 95. We went through the steroid era. We went through the cheating scandal with the Astros. Baseball, because it is, I always say it's treated differently because it is still America's pastime that they can't screw this up. If they screw this up again, yeah. fans, fans aren't going to have it. I mean, they already have butts-in-the-seats problems. I mean, it's still a good regional game. It's an awesome regional game. Look at the salaries these baseball players get paid. It's crazy. But the problem for me is that, and here we are on the calendar sitting here in, in May looking at it going, they need four to six weeks of some type of spring training. Sure. Now you're at July the 4th as a possible maybe opening day in a best-case situation where they, I think, will play some bit of a season. It might only be 60 games. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those, again, to where you look at the way that season's laid out. It, it would be kind of fun to watch that and then play a little bit of an extended playoff to where they could wrap it up still in late October, early November and get it done. But every week that goes by makes a lot of this less likely. But that's a game that can be played with minimal fans to no fans in the stands and still be a very, very good product for TV. Mm. Um, and right now, people would love it. I mean, Major League Baseball ratings would be through the roof regionally if all for of a sure. sudden you and I can watch the Reds and the Indians and it really be the only thing on. Why not? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, it looks like it may take place where uh, they're able to, quote-unquote, quarantine them in some type of location, whether that be Florida, whether that right. be Arizona. Uh, but no, that it would be. Hey, how cool would that be to be able to hear it vis-a-vis radio or on the TV when you come home at night uh, to have even a, you know, gosh, a, a 60 to 75 game schedule. In our dozen plus years of these conversations, I've always said baseball to me still is a radio game. Yeah. Um, part right. of the appreciation that I grew up with radio was that you got to listen and, and kind of visualize the game for yourself. Uh, and I, I've always been, still am that way to where nothing's better than on a summer night to be able to sit outside and you have drink of whatever favor you want in your hand listening to a baseball game on the radio. I mean, how good does that sound right now to be able to do that? It feels like it's been a long time since we've been able to do it. For sure, for sure. I guess Marty Brenneman, he picked the right year, I guess, oh. to uh, say his uh, bon voyage because uh, it would be it would be a tough season if you were a baseball announcer uh, let alone a player or a participant. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I really hope that baseball is able to come back. I, I just I think too. that would be – I think it would be great. And, and frankly, if they have to do some type of um, neutral park for the World Series, I, I still would be okay with that. People have said maybe that makes more sense sometimes anyways, to where they could have more of a fanfare atmosphere yeah. like the Super Bowl has always had. So, hey, you got to get creative you got to get creative. I love the, the first one I had heard that I actually kind of liked was when they said that they could play the Grapefruit League and then the basically Cactus League. So all the teams that warmed up in spring training is in Arizona comparatively to Florida and just keep it within those two areas. That didn't, you know, to me that wasn't like it was that crazy. I know that kind of defeats the American National League part of it, but I thought this is such an atypical year. Right. 
I'm not sure if you ask those players, they could care less about that. They just won't play. I mean, that's yeah. really what it does come down to. But I think players, when they, the young players, when you hear them talk, it's one thing. Kind of about money, and it's about just being able to play and safety. The other part of it is the players that are married, that has families. How do you how do you involve all that? And that's been probably the biggest part of the union and the players' association trying to figure that part of it out off the field to make this work. And that's part of the reason we still don't have an answer sitting here. Today. Yeah, the uh, elephant in the room, the National Football League, just keeps sure. plowing through. Uh, they uh, did not take a break. They held their draft, uh, the uh, draft on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, what was your grade on that, and uh, what was your takeaway? So a guy that doesn't has went on record many times, mm-hmm. dead opposite of you. That's our that's our one debatable issue in life is you love the draft and I hate it. Yeah. But you know what? This year I loved it. Yeah. It was like a party night. You know, you, you get your food, you're ready to roll, you sit down, you watch it, and I I didn't miss one second. I watched all of it. <laughs> I, I even laughed. I thought of you so many different times because I was like, here I am of all people sitting here on a Thursday night um, past midnight watching every pick of the first round. Came back the next night and watched every pick of the second and third round and, and enjoyed it. I thought they actually did a very good job. I mean, there were so many moving parts involved in that. I thought it was well done and fun to watch. Really did. Yeah, I agree. I thought Roger Goodell, who gets a lot of uh, heat, did a great, great job in his uh, basement. You know, I thought that's funny. People saying, and, and I, I've, I've uh, had the privilege of staying at a couple homes up in that Westchester area. I mean, those are the homes. People are like, that's his basement? That's all he's got for 40 – that's all $40 million gets you? But that, to me, those are those old storied homes that uh, everybody has in that neighbor, those neighborhoods up there. And I thought right. he did a great job, and I thought it, it, you know, it went very well, especially right. leaning into it, uh, Adam Schefter reporting technical issues the day before, right out of the gate. Uh, I thought they pulled it off very well. Very yeah, well. Absolutely. What yeah, – uh, what were your uh, what were your impressions of uh, let's just start with Joe Burrow going to the Bengals? I think it's a great pickup for the Bengals. I think they've got a pro. I mean, with mentality wise, you can tell he just handles himself kind of differently than a lot of people do. Does a lot of the right things. Um, I thought the Bengals as an organization did a pretty good job, kind of being a dumpster fire to get themselves first off, get him some weapons, get him some protection, um, put him in a situation to where he can succeed. Interestingly enough, I, I didn't know what was going to happen with the other players that were going to be quarterbacks on that roster. Hey, you know, just more importantly, Andy Dalton. How was that going to be handled? You know, they made that pretty quickly decision to get Andy Dalton out of there. Thought maybe they would have even done it last year, maybe to pick up some picks later in the year. With some of those, I agree with some of those teams. You know, wanted a veteran quarterback that they could have shopped him even for more. Uh, but it, it shows you right now they've made a commitment to Joe Burrow, and for them, exactly what they need. They just now, it's, it's just like what every team finds, this is the most important step. Okay. The secondary three step might be more important or complement the first one and make it look better. The easy thing is to pick the quarterback. Mm-hmm. The hard part is is to surround him in a system with personnel, blocking up front more importantly, and then being able to get him weapons that he can build a rapport with over those first two to three years. But I like it. I think they did exactly what they had to do. I don't, I don't think there was any question Joe Burrow deserved to be coming. Yeah. Uh, how do you stack up uh, with the Browns, uh, the Ravens, the Steelers? I know the Bengals, they're, they're going to be in fourth place most right. likely. Uh, yeah. How do you stack up that AFC North? I love it. I think it's another good division. I mean, again, you see Ben Roethlisberger here 
uh, this week starting to throw the football, and he found his way back into the headlines. So that drives everybody that hates the Steelers crazy, and all mm-hmm. Steelers fans are happy to see it because they know his time's limited in the National Football League. Ravens put themselves on the map. You know, that's that's what everyone's waiting to kind of find out if the league catches up to Lamar Jackson. And then the Browns, I thought they did it right. You know, they got it. The offensive line was something that still was out there, had to be addressed. They took care of it. They're able to get people to block. What they've done is, I'm telling you what, this is Baker Mayfield's year. If, if it doesn't work, they're going to move on mm. because it, there aren't many excuses. He's got as many weapons as any other quarterback in the National Football League has. The offensive line is as good as it's been. He's got a new coach in that is a very offensive-minded type of coach, but yet is is probably a little more under control than what Freddie Kitchens gave him, Kevin Stefanski. And and he's also got a veteran backup now in Case Keenum that can plug and play. I mean, if something does happen, look out. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. But if you're the Browns fans, I think you should be more optimistic way more optimistic than you were last year just from the fact that your roster does not have a ton of turnover. You've got a lot of guys back. And I think there's actually some calming right now within the Browns front offices because they're not the circus show that they were 365 days ago. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think Stefanski, uh, major improvement over Freddie Kitchens Definitely. from a, just from a gravitas and a stability standpoint. Uh, this, this could be the year for the Browns. I agree with you. Uh, all right, head out west and your 49ers who uh, were runners up in the uh, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 54. What what what's your take there? I thought they did uh, you know a couple interesting things. They they didn't really lose too many uh, great players on that roster, but they lost some complimentary pieces to free agency. And knew what was going to happen, but they did a lot of moving around. Uh, they were able to pick up what they needed to get done. Obviously, the I think. Everybody thought it was going to be wide receiver, wide receiver, wide receiver to surround Jimmy Garoppolo with as much as possible. And what do they do? They get rid of DeForest Buckner. They move him on to Indianapolis. They pick up the first-round pick. And what do they do with that pick? They trade down out of it and end up getting another defensive lineman that they're playing in. But mm. what it comes down to is for the 49ers is they've got a, they've got a definite recipe. They know they want to be incredible along the defensive front. They know they want to be able to surround Jimmy Garoppolo with stud athletes that are transitional players that can line up as running backs, that can line up in the slot, that can line up out wide, that can catch the football out of the backfield, that can make plays after the catch. That's what they drafted. They did it again. They picked a stud defensive lineman. They picked another wide receiver that can make plays. They just expanded the depth. And, oh, by the way, they got rid of some of the salary cap constraints because they know after this year – they're going to have to pay George Kittle a bunch of money. And some of those defensive players' contracts are coming up, too. About five of their 11 starters that are going to get paid at the end of this season. So they know they have to have a very comfortable salary cap and a, and a roster financially to be able to pay it. But I like where they're at. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a deep roster. Again, um, if Garoppolo can improve. If he can be a little more confident with his knee, I still thought last year at times late in that season, he still favored that knee that he hurt the year before mm-hmm. coming off that ACL. But I think one more year of that will enhance his ability to make a few more plays with his feet, stay in the pocket, be a little crisper in his decision making and being comfortable with that offense. But I like where they're at right now as a team. I think the NFC is absolutely loaded. 
the chances of them in Kansas City in a rematch is not very high, but they're definitely two of the best teams in the NFL for sure. Yeah, uh, NFL uh, for sure. Matt Metzger uh, with us here. It's Matt Childers. Uh, Having a uh, good little uh, conversation here uh, on the Limeland Hoops and History podcast, and it's good to be back with uh, Matt. Um, more likely that the Saints or the Cowboys would be in that NFC matchup against the 49ers if the 49ers got there. That's, really interesting. That's a good one. That's a great question. I, I'm going to put just karma and time that Father Time keeps ticking for Drew Brees. Mm. That I think he's got one more run in him, you know, just to be able to have that and um, – Mm. The best NFL regular season game last year was the 49ers and Saints. Yes. So that would be yeah. an awesome rematch again to be able to have that. That's a regular season matchup this year, again, for both those teams. That's a must-see TV event on the NFL schedule as well. But I think the Saints still are a very good team in the NFC South. I think that's part of the reason, because they are in the NFC South a little more of a friendlier road for them. I think Tampa Bay will be interesting, obviously, with Tom Brady. That transition is a whole other conversation. Um, Carolina's different than they were for sure uh, with their changes that they're going to take place. But I, I look at Dallas still. They obviously have something with Dak Prescott that they don't necessarily believe 100% is important. Because if they did, I've been telling people this year, they would have went all in right out of the game. And they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And Jerry Jones, of all people, he believes in you. He proved it. Keeping Jason Garrett as the head coach all those years. And if he really, really bought in, even though he says he does, Dak Prescott would have got paid a long time. Yeah, you know, he's paid Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, they paid the uh, the receiver now. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I do think that Dak Prescott, the more he waits, he's just going to get more money. I think they should have they should have done it a long time ago. But they should have. In the end, it'll be interesting to see, you know, Jerry Jones, there's that old joke that says, uh, you know, Jerry Jones, the owner who is get who gets an A-plus uh, as an owner on the marketing side, the building of this incredible billion-dollar franchise that he bought for about $170, $180 $180 and fired Tom Landry, brought in Jimmy Johnson, incredible success. And then you and then you go to Jerry Jones, the general manager, and I, I think they've won one playoff game maybe since '95. Yeah. So yeah, he did win. He did win in one other thing in the draft that night too was the visualization of after after showing the different houses. Yeah. Of course, they showed Jerry Jones on his quarter of a billion dollar yacht. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, that pretty much ends the that, discussion on who had the best gig. That's on the yeah. That's on the ownership uh, A plus grade that he gets uh, for for his ownership piece. Uh, all right, uh, Matt, uh, let's talk just real briefly about uh, college football. Do you think that uh, there will be college football? And we just saw that Notre Dame said they're coming back in August with students and they're going to be gone from campus at Thanksgiving. They've got to find a way to, to again, I mean, now we're into a whole different discussion because education mm. reigns. They've got to find a way that if the kids can't be back on campus full go, there's no way that they're going to have same type of college football season that they did. I, I could see something happening to where it might be like a 10-game schedule. You might see conference games only, um, something that eliminates some of the travel, maybe some of the ridiculousness that was out there before. It, this is man. Th this can go like 90 different directions because unfortunately those yeah. those early season games, Matt, are the reasons that there are athletic departments at a lot of universities in the school because. Yeah. Ohio State takes on the Mac schools and are paying a million dollars plus 
that supports that entire athletic question. So if you eliminate those games, you pretty much now have said that there are only five conferences in college football that matter. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have said that for years anyways. Mm -hmm. But you very much now have distances. So they've got to be very careful. People can say, well, it's only one year. I'm like, listen, one year, we've already seen the budgets here regionally. Look at Bowling Green, just just the recent dropping baseball, a program that had history and stuff behind it. That relates to football. All of this relates to college football. So – they're going to try hard. I mean, that's a multi-billion dollar business that's out there that they have to have in some capacity. But I could see it a shortened season to where they can try to get it out on the calendar. I know they're all really worried because of the fall and the reemergence of a possible round two of this type of pandemic with so many kids on campus. It's something that's going to come into more of a discussion as the summer moves on. But one is if you hear these university presidents and athletic directors talk they have to make those decisions now. Yeah. They can't wait another two months or three months to be able to do it. We will have college football. It might be without fans, and it might be a shortened schedule. But I think we will have college football, and we will have the NFL. Yeah, the NFL just keeps plugging right along, right, don't they? Away. That's, the, that's the only one if somebody said, rank and file, who do you think's coming back and who's going to do it the quickest? There's no doubt. My question is who's number two because I know who number one is. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's the venerable NFL, the uh, the giant of all of them. So, uh, Matt, it's been a pleasure. We'll get into hoops, uh, local hoops, and, and get your take on you know the 2020 season. We had Mark Triplett on just recently and talking about the yeah. Shawnee Indians. I'd I'd like to have uh, Coach Q on and Tyson McLaughlin and. Uh, get the coaches from Parkway and Columbus Grove. But, uh, um, you know, we'll talk about that uh, on another day. It's just been a pleasure having uh, the conversation with you. I've missed it. Uh, it's really it's really uh, nice to connect. We're having some of these things that seem to be coming back a little. And then, as you said, that last dance was really uh, an incredible uh, gift to us for the last uh, the last five weeks. No, we definitely we definitely enjoyed that. There's no question. All of us that are basketball fans clinging to anything, just sports fans in general. You know, we're we're maybe a couple weeks. Race fans got to watch their guys drive around a racetrack this yeah. weekend. We got to see a little taste of golf. That's potentially going to get kind of a home run here for us in June uh, with PGA coming back and seeing how that's going to look. So we are incrementally starting to get back. I mean, it has. It's been a grinding road. I think. You know, for everybody, the one thing sports has provided the use and means of the world is a relief, a break, a little bit of therapy from the real world. And people Always. need that maybe now more than ever. We used to and see, hopefully yeah. in the coming weeks, that's going to happen. You and I have said that uh, sitting off uh, microphone uh, in the studios before saying, man, thank gosh we have sports because it's it's really a blessing to have them when uh, – uh, when, when you're in good times, it's great to have them. That's right. And uh, right. we'll look forward to having them again. Hey, buddy, pleasure to have uh, you. Really great to be with you. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, part two when we talk some uh, local hoops. Always, Matt. Thank you so much. And look forward to doing it again. You got it. Uh, Matt Metzger, everybody, on Limeland Hoops and History. And uh, really appreciate Matt and all of his time. Uh, until the next time, I'm Matt Childers. Have a great uh, day and a great weekend, everybody.